0: Notre-Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book Ten, Chapter One. Gringoire has several capital ideas in succession in the Rue des Bernardins. When Pierre Gringoire saw the turn which this whole matter was taking, and that a rope, hanging, and other unpleasant things must certainly be the fate of the chief actors in the play, he no longer cared to meddle with it. The vagrants with whom he remained Considering that, after all, they were the best company to be found in Paris, the vagrants still retained their interest in the gypsy. He thought this very natural on the part of people who, like her, had no prospect but Sharmelou and torterou to which to look forward, and who did not, like him, roam through the realms of imagination upon the wings of Pegasus. He learned from their conversation that his bride of the broken jug had taken refuge in Notre-Dame, and he was very glad of it, but he felt no temptation to visit her. He sometimes wondered what had become of the little goat, and that was all. In the daytime he performed feats of juggling for a living, and at night he wrought out an elaborate memorial against the Bishop of Paris for he remembered being drenched by his mill-wheels, and he bore him a grudge for it. He also busied himself with comments on that fine work by Baudry-le-Rouge, Bishop of Noyon and Tournai, entitled De Cupe Petrarum, The Stone Cup, which had inspired him with an ardent taste for architecture, a fancy which had replaced in his heart the passion for hermetics of which indeed it was but a natural corollary, since there is a close connection between hermetics and masonry. Gringoire had turned from the love of an idea to love of the substance. One day he halted near Saint Germain l'Auzérois, at the corner of a building known as the Fort l'Évêque, which faces another known as the Fort Lois. This Fort contained a charming fourteenth century chapel the chancel of which looked towards the street. Gringoire was devoutly studying the outside carvings. He was enjoying one of those moments of selfish, exclusive, supreme pleasure, during which the artist sees nothing in the world but art, and sees the world in art. All at once he felt a hand laid heavily on his shoulder. He turned. It was his former friend, his former master, the archdeacon." He was astounded. It was a long time since he had seen the archdeacon, and Dom Claude was one of those solemn and impassioned men, a meeting with whom always upsets the equilibrium of a skeptic philosopher. The archdeacon was silent for some moments, during which Gringoire had leisure to observe him. He found Dom Claude greatly changed, pale as a winter morning, hollow-eyed, his hair almost white the priest at last broke the silence, saying in a calm but icy tone, How are you, Master Pierre? As to my health, answered Gringoire, Well, well, I may say I am tolerably robust, upon the whole. I take everything in moderation. You know, Master, the secret of good health, according to Hippocrates. id est, cibi, potus somni cenus omnia moderata sint. "'Food, drink, sleep, love, all in moderation. "'Then you have nothing to trouble you, Master Pierre,' replied the archdeacon, "'looking fixedly at Gringoire. "'No, by my faith. "'And what are you doing now? "'You see, Master, I am examining the cutting of these stones, "'and the style in which that bas-relief is thrown out.' "'The priest smiled a bitter smile.' "'which only lifted one corner of his mouth. "'And does that amuse you?' "'It is paradise,' exclaimed Gringoire. "'And bending over the sculptures with the ravished mien "'of a demonstrator of living phenomena,' he added, "'For instance, don't you think that metamorphosis in low relief "'is carved with exceeding skill, refinement, and patience? "'Just look at this little column.' Around what capital did you ever see foliage more graceful, or more daintily chiseled? Here are three of Jean Maivant's alto-relievos. They are not the finest works of that great genius. Still, the ingenuousness, the sweetness of the faces, the careless ease of the attitudes and draperies, and that inexplicable charm which is mingled with all their defects, make these tiny figures most delicate and delightful perhaps almost too much so. Don't you think this is entertaining? Yes, indeed, said the priest. And if you could only see the inside of the chapel, continued the poet, with his garrulous enthusiasm, carvings everywhere, crowded as close as the leaves in the heart of a cabbage, the chancel is fashioned most devoutly, and is so peculiar that I have never seen its like elsewhere. Dumb Claude interrupted him. "'so you are happy?' Gringoire eagerly replied, "'Yes, on my honor. "'At first I loved women, then animals. "'Now I love stones. "'They are quite as amusing as animals or women, "'and they are less treacherous.' "'The priest pressed his hand to his head. "'It was his habitual gesture. "'Indeed.' "'Stay,' said Gringoire. "'You shall see my pleasures.' He took the arm of the unresisting priest, and led him into the staircase turret of Fort Levesque. There's a staircase for you. Every time I see it I am happy. It is the simplest and yet the rarest in Paris. Every step is beveled underneath. Its beauty and simplicity consist in the treads, which, for a foot or more in width, are interlaced, mortised, dovetailed, joined, linked together, and set into one another in a genuinely solid and goodly way. And you desire nothing more? No. And you have no regrets? Neither regret nor desire. I have arranged my mode of life. What man arranges, said Claude, circumstances disarrange. I am a Peronian philosopher, replied Gringoire. "'and I keep everything equally balanced. "'And how do you earn your living? "'I still write occasional epics and tragedies, "'but what brings me in the most "'is that trade which you have seen me follow, Master, "'namely, upholding pyramids of chairs in my teeth. "'That is a sorry trade for a philosopher. "'Tis keeping up an equilibrium all the same,' (laughs) "'said Gringoire, "'when one has but a single idea he finds it in everything. "'I know that,' responded the archdeacon. After a pause, he added, "'And yet you are poor enough.' "'Poor, yes, but not unhappy.' At this instant the sound of horses' hoofs was heard, and our two friends saw a company of archers belonging to the king's ordnance file by at the end of the street, with raised lances, and an officer at their head." The cavalcade was a brilliant one, and clattered noisily over the pavement. "'How you stare at that officer,' said Gringoire to the archdeacon. "'Because I think I have seen him before.' "'What is his name?' "'I believe,' said Claude, "'that his name is Phoebus de chateau "'Phoebus, a queer name! There is also a Phoebus Count de Foix.' I once knew a girl who never swore save by Phoebus. "'Come with me,' said the priest. "'I have something to say to you.' Ever since the troops passed by, some agitation was apparent beneath the icy exterior of the archdeacon. He walked on. Gringoire followed, accustomed to obey him, like all who ever approached that man full of such ascendancy." They reached the Rue des Bernardins in silence, and found it quite deserted. Here, Dom Claude paused. "'What have you to tell me, master?' asked Gringoire. "'Don't you think,' replied the archdeacon, with a most reflective air, "'that the dress of those horsemen whom we just saw is far handsomer than yours and mine?' Gringoire shook his head. "'In faith!' I like my red-and-yellow jacket better than those scales of steel and iron. What pleasure can there be in making as much noise when you walk as the Quai de la Ferraille in an earthquake? Then, Gringoire, you never envied those fine fellows in their warlike array? Envied them what, Sir Archdeacon? Their strength, their armor, or their discipline? Philosophy and independence in rags are far preferable. I would rather be the head of a fly than the tail of a lion. "'That's strange,' said the priest meditatively. "'And yet a handsome uniform is a fine thing.' Gringoire, seeing that he was absorbed in thought, left him in order to admire the porch of a neighboring house. He came back clapping his hands. "'If you were not so absorbed in the fine uniforms of those soldiers, Sir Archdeacon—' I would beg you to take a look at that door. I always said that my Lord Aubrey's house had the most superb entrance in the world. Pierre Gringoire, said the archdeacon, what have you done with that little gypsy dancer? Esmeralda? What a sudden change of subject! Was she not your wife? Yes, by means of a broken pitcher. We are married for four years. By the way, "'added Gringoire, regarding the archdeacon "'with a half-bantering air. "'Are you still thinking of her? "'And you, do you think of her no longer? "'Seldom. "'I have so many other things to occupy me. "'Heavens, how pretty that little goat of hers was. "'Did not the girl save your life?' "'She did indeed, by Jupiter. "'Well, what has become of her?' What have you done with her? I can't say. I fancy that they hanged her. You really think so? I'm not sure of it. When I saw that they had taken to hanging people, I withdrew from the game. Is that all you know about the matter? Stay. I was told that she had taken refuge in Notre Dame, and that she was in safety there, and I am delighted to hear it, and I can't find out whether the goat was saved along with her and that's all I know about it.' "'I'll tell you more,' cried Dom Claude, and his voice, hitherto so low, slow, and almost muffled, became as loud as thunder. She did indeed take refuge in Notre-Dame, but within three days justice will again overtake her, and she will be hanged upon the Place de Greve. Parliament has issued a decree.' "'That's a pity,' said Gringoire. The priest, in the twinkling of an eye, had recovered his coldness and calm. "'And who the devil,' resumed the poet, "'has amused himself by soliciting an order of restitution? "'Why couldn't he have left Parliament in peace? "'What harm does it do if a poor girl takes shelter "'under the flying buttresses of Notre-Dame, alongside of the swallows' nests?' "'There are Satans in the world,' replied the archdeacon." "'That's a devilish bad job,' observed Gringoire. "'The archdeacon resumed after a pause. "'So she saved your life?' "'From my good friends the vagrants. "'A little more, or a little less, and I should have been hanged. "'They would be very sorry for it now.' "'Don't you want to do anything to help her?' "'With all my heart, Dom Claude. "'But what if I should get myself into trouble?' What would that matter? What? What would it matter? How kind you are, Master. I have two great works, but just begun. The priest struck his forehead. In spite of his feigned calmness, an occasional violent gesture betrayed his inward struggles. How is she to be saved? Gringoire said, "Master, I might answer, il pa delt." which is Turkish for, God is our hope. "'How is she to be saved?' dreamily repeated the archdeacon. Gringoire, in his turn, clapped his hand to his head. "'See here, master, I have a lively imagination. I will devise various expedients. Suppose the king were asked to pardon her.' "'Louis the Eleventh To pardon?' "'Why not?' As well try to rob a tiger of his bone. Gringoire set to work to find some fresh solution of the difficulty. Well, stop. Do you want me to drop a petition to the midwives declaring the girl to be pregnant? This made the priest's hollow eye flash. Pregnant? Villain? Do you know anything about it? Gringoire was terrified by his expression. "'he made haste to say, "'Oh, no, not I. "'Our marriage was a true forest meritagium. "'I was entirely left out. "'But at any rate, we should gain time. "'Folly, infamy, be silent.' "'You are wrong to be so vexed,' grumbled Gringoire. "'We should gain time. "'It would do no one any harm, "'and the midwives, who are poor women, "'would earn forty Paris pence.' The priest paid no attention to him. "'And yet she must be got away,' he muttered. "'The order will be executed within three days. "'Besides, even if there were no order, that Quasimodo. "'Women have very depraved tastes.' "'He raised his voice. "'Master Pierre, I considered it well. "'There's but one means of salvation for her.' "'What is it? "'I, for my part, see none.' Listen, Master Pierre, and remember that you owe your life to her. I will frankly tell you my idea. The church is watched night and day. No one is allowed to come out but those who are seen to go in. Therefore, you can go in. You will come, and I will take you to her. You will change clothes with her. She will put on your doublet. You will put on her gown." "'So far, so good,' remarked the philosopher. "'What next?' "'What next? "'She will walk out in your clothes. "'You will stay behind in hers. "'Perhaps they may hang you, but she will be saved.' Gringoire scratched his ear with a very grave look. "'There,' said he, "'that's an idea which would never have occurred to me.' "'At Dom Claude's unexpected proposition,' The poet's benign and open face had suddenly darkened, like a smiling Italian landscape when some fatal blast sweeps a cloud across the sun. Well, Gringoire, what do you say to the plan? I say, Master, that they would not hang me, perhaps, but that they would hang me without the slightest doubt. That does not concern us. The devil it doesn't, said Gringoire. "'She saved your life. "'You would only be paying your debt. "'There are plenty of others which I have not paid. "'Master Pierre, it absolutely must be done.' "'The archdeacon spoke with authority. "'Listen to me, Dom Claude,' replied the dismayed poet. "'You cling to that idea, and you are wrong. "'I don't see why I should be hanged in another person's stead.' "'What makes you so fond of life?' "'Oh, a thousand things!' "'What are they, if you please?' "'What? "'The air, the sky, morning and evening, "'moonlight, my good friends the vagabonds, "'our larks with the girls, "'the architectural beauties of Paris to study, three big books to write, "'one of which is directed against the bishop and his mills, "'and I know not what else.' Anaxagoras said that he came into the world to admire the sun. And besides, I have the pleasure of spending all my days, from morning till night, with a man of genius, to wit, myself, and that is a mighty agreeable thing. "'Rattle-pate,' muttered the archdeacon. "'Well, speak. Who preserved that life of yours which you find so delightful?' To whom do you owe it that you still breathe this air, behold that sky, and are still able to amuse your feather-brain with trifles and nonsense? Where would you be now but for her? Would you have her die, to whom you owe your life? Have her die, that sweet, lovely, adorable creature, necessary to the light of the world, more divine than God himself while you, half madman and half sage, a mere sketch of something or other, a sort of vegetable growth which fancies that it walks and fancies that it thinks. You are to go on living with the life of which you have robbed her, as useless as a candle at high noon. Come, have a little pity, Gringoire. Be generous in your turn. She set you the example." the priest was excited. At first Gringoire listened with an air of indecision. Then he relented, and ended by pulling a tragic grimace which made his pallid face look like that of a newborn baby with colic. "'You are pathetic,' said he, wiping away a tear. "'Well, I will consider it. That's an odd idea of yours. After all,' he added, after a pause." Who knows? Perhaps they would not hang me. Betrothal is not always marriage. When they find me in her cell, so ridiculously arrayed, in cap and petticoats, perhaps they'll burst out laughing. And then, if they do hang me, why, the rope is like any other death. Or rather, it's not like any other death. It is a death worthy of the wise man who has wavered and swung to and fro all his life." A death which is neither fish nor flesh, like the spirit of the genuine skeptic. A death fully impressed with Pyrrhonism and uncertainty. A happy medium between heaven and earth, which leaves one in suspense. It is the right death for a philosopher, and perhaps I was predestined to it. It is magnificent to die as one has lived. The priest interrupted him is it agreed? What is death, after all, continued Gringoire, with exultation? An unpleasant moment, a turnpike gate, the passage from little to nothing. Someone having asked Sir Kytus of Magalopolis if he was willing to die, why not, he answered, for after my death I shall see those great men, Pythagoras among the philosophers, Hecatius among the historians, Homer among the poets, Olympus among the musicians. The archdeacon offered him his hand. It is settled, then. You will come tomorrow. This gesture brought Gringoire back to reality. Oh, no, by my faith, said he in the tone of a man awaking from sleep. To be hanged? That is too absurd. I'll not do it. "'Farewell, then,' and the archdeacon added between his teeth. "'I shall see you again.' "'I have no desire to see that devil of a man again,' thought Gringoire, "'and he hurried after Dom Claude. "'Stay, Sir Archdeacon. "'No malice between old friends. "'You take an interest in that girl—in my wife, I should say. "'It is well. "'You have planned a stratagem for rescuing her from Notre-Dame.' but your scheme is a very disagreeable one for me, Gringoire. Suppose I have another. I warn you that a most brilliant inspiration has just occurred to me. What if I have a suitable plan for getting her out of her evil plight without compromising my own neck in the least of slip nooses? What would you say? Wouldn't that satisfy you? Is it absolutely necessary that I should be hanged to suit you? The priest impatiently wrenched the buttons from his cassock, saying, "'What a flood of words! What is your scheme?' "'Yes,' resumed Gringoire, talking to himself, and laying his finger to his nose in token of his absorption. "'That's just it. The vagabonds are brave fellows. The gypsy nation love her. They will rise at a single word. Nothing easier. A sudden attack— Amidst the confusion, she can readily be carried off. Tomorrow night, they will ask nothing better. "'Your plan. Speak,' said the priest, shaking him roughly. Gringoire turned majestically towards him. "'Let me alone. Don't you see that I am in the throes of composition?' He reflected for a few moments more, then clapped his hands in delight, exclaiming, "'Capital! Success is assured!' "'Your plan,' angrily repeated Claude. Gringoire was radiant. "'Come close, and let me whisper it to you. "'It is really a jolly countermine, "'and one which will get us all out of difficulty. "'Zounds, you must confess that I am no fool.' "'He interrupted himself. "'Oh, by the way, is the little goat still with the girl?' "'Yes,' May the foul fiend fly away with you. They were going to hang her, too, were they not? What is that to me? Yes, they would have hanged her. They did hang a sow last month. The hangman likes that. He eats the animal afterwards. Hang, my pretty jolly. Poor little lamb. Curses on you, cried Dom Claude. You are the executioner yourself." What means of saving her have you hit upon, rascal? Must I tear your idea from you with the forceps? Softly, master, it is this. Gringoire bent to the archdeacon's ear and whispered to him, casting an anxious glance up and down the street meanwhile, although there was no one in sight. When he ended, Dom Claude took his hand and said coldly, It is well. Until tomorrow, then. "'Until to-morrow,' repeated Gringoire. And as the archdeacon departed in one direction, he moved away in the other, muttering, "'Here's a pretty business, Master Pierre Gringoire. Never mind. It shall not be said that because a man is little he is afraid of a great enterprise.' Bitton carried a full-grown bull upon his shoulders. "'Wagtails, black caps, and stone-chats cross the sea.' Chapter 2 Turn Vagabond The archdeacon on returning to the cloisters found his brother Jean de Moulin awaiting him at the door of his cell he had whiled away the fatigue of waiting by drawing upon the wall in charcoal his elder brother's profile enriched with an exaggerated nose dom claude scarcely looked at his brother he had other cares that merry roguish face whose radiance had so often brightened the priest's gloomy countenance was now incapable of dissipating the clouds which grew daily thicker over that corrupt, mephitic, stagnant soul. Brother, timidly said Jeanne, I have come to see you. The archdeacon did not even deign to look at him. Well, brother, continued the hypocrite, you are so good to me, and you give me such good advice that I am always coming back to you. Well. Alas, brother, how right you were when you said to me, Jeon, Jeon. Cesat doctorum doctrina, dicipulorum disciplina. Jeon, be prudent. Jeon, be studious. Jeon, do not wander outside the college bounds at night without just cause and leave from your master. Do not quarrel with the Picards. No li, Ioannis, verberare Picardos. Do not lie and molder like an illiterate ass. Quasi asinus illiteratus, amidst the litter of the schools. Jeon suffer yourself to be punished at the discretion of your master. Geon, go to chapel every evening, and sing an anthem with a collect and prayer to our glorious Lady, the Virgin Mary. Alas, what excellent counsels were these! Well? Brother, you see before you a guilty wretch, a criminal, a miserable sinner, a libertine, a monster. My dear brother, Jean has trampled your advice beneath his feet. I am fitly punished for it, and the good God is strangely just. So long as I had money, I rioted and revelled and led a jolly life. Oh, how charming is the face of vice, but how ugly and crooked is her back. Now I have not a single silver coin. I have sold my tablecloth, my shirt, and my towel. No more feasting for me. The wax candle has burned out, and I have nothing left but a wretched tallow dip, which reeks in my nostrils. The girls laugh at me. I drink water. I am tormented by creditors and remorse. "'What else?' said the archdeacon. "'Alas, dearest brother, I would fain lead a better life. I came to you full of contrition. I am penitent. I confess my sins. I beat my breast lustily.' You were quite right to wish me to become a licentiate and sub-monitor of the Collège de Torquay. I now feel that I have the strongest vocation for that office, but I have no ink, I must buy some. I have no pens, I must buy some. I have no paper, I have no books, I must buy some. I am in great want of a little money for all these things, and I come to you, brother, with a contrite heart." Is that all? Yes, said the student. A little money. I have none. The student then said with a grave and at the same time resolute air, Very well, brother. I am sorry to be obliged to tell you that very fine offers and propositions have been made me by another party. You will not give me the money? No. In that case, I shall turn vagabond. As he uttered this monstrous word, he assumed the expression of an Ajax, expecting to see the thunderbolt descend upon his head. The archdeacon said coldly, Turn, vagabond. Jean bowed low and hurried down the cloister stairs, whistling as he went. Just as he passed through the courtyard of the cloisters, under his brother's window, he heard that window open, looked up, and saw the archdeacon's stern face at the aperture. "'Go to the devil,' said Dom Claude. "'This is the last money which you will ever get from me.' At the same time he flung at Jehan a purse which raised a large lump on his forehead, and with which he departed, at once angry and pleased, like a dog pelted with marrow-bones. CHAPTER Three, JOY FOREVER. The reader may remember that a part of the Court of Miracles was enclosed by the ancient boundary wall of the city, many of whose towers had, at this time, begun to fall into ruin. One of these towers had been made into a pleasure-house by the vagabonds. There was a tavern in the lower portion, and other things above— This tower was the most lively and consequently the most horrible spot in the vagrant community. It was a sort of monstrous beehive, which buzzed and hummed night and day. At night, when all the surplus beggars were asleep, when there was not a window still lighted in any of the dirty houses in the square, when no sound was longer to be heard from any of the innumerable hovels, the abode of swarms of thieves, prostitutes, and stolen children or foundlings, the jolly tower might always be known by the noise which rose from it, by the red light which, beaming alike from chimneys, windows, and cracks in the crumbling walls, escaped, as it were, at every pore. The cellar, then, was the tavern. It was reached by a low door and a flight of stairs as steep as a classic Alexandrine verse. Over the door, by way of sign, there was a marvellous daub, portraying a number of coins fresh from the mint and fresh-killed chickens, with these punning words above, The bell-ringers for the dead. One evening, when the curfew-bell was ringing from every belfry in Paris, the sergeants of the watch, had they chanced to enter the much-dreaded Court of Miracles, Might have observed that there was even more uproar than usual in the tavern of the vagabonds, that there was more drinking and more swearing than ordinary. Outside, in the square, numerous groups were chatting together in low tones, as if planning some great enterprise, and here and there some scamp squatted on the ground, sharpening a rusty iron blade upon a paving stone. Within the tavern itself, however, Cards and wine proved so powerful a diversion from the ideas which that evening occupied the minds of the vagrant community, that it would have been hard to guess from the remarks of the drinkers what the scheme on foot really was. They merely seemed somewhat more jovial than usual, and between the legs of every man glistened a a weapon—a pruning-hook, an axe, a big two-edged sword, or the hook of an old hackbutt. The room was circular in shape and very large, but the tables were so closely crowded, and the topers so numerous, that the entire contents of the tavern—men, women, benches, beer jugs, drinkers, sleepers, gamblers, able-bodied and crippled—seemed to be heaped together pell-mell, with no more order or harmony than a pile of oyster-shells. A number of tallow-dips burned on the tables. But the real luminary of the tavern, which played the same part as the chandelier in an opera house, was the fire. This cellar was so damp that the fire on the hearth was never suffered to go out, even in midsummer. There was a huge fireplace with carved overhanging mantel, bristling with clumsy iron andirons and kitchen utensils, and one of those tremendous fires of wood and turf mixed. Which at night in village streets cast such red and spectral images on the opposite walls from the window of a forge. A large dog sat soberly in the ashes and turned a spit laden with meat before the embers. In spite of the confusion, after the first glance, three principal groups were readily to be distinguished, pressing about three personages with whom the reader is already acquainted. One of these persons, grotesquely decked with various gaudy Oriental rags, was Matthias Hungadi Spicali, Duke of Egypt and Bohemia. The rascal sat upon a table, with crossed legs and uplifted finger, loudly dispensing his store of black-and-white magic to the many gaping faces around him. Another mob crowded closely about our old friend, the worthy king of Tunis, or lord of black-legs, Clopin Troifoux. Armed to the teeth, he was very seriously, and in low tones, superintending the pillage of an enormous cask full of weapons, which stood staved in before him, and from which were disgorged quantities of axes, swords, priming-pans, coats of mail, spear-heads, and antique lance-heads, arrows and crossbow bolts, "'like so many apples and grapes from a cornucopia. "'Each took from the heap what he chose, "'one a helmet, one a sword-blade, "'and another a misericordia, or cross-handled dagger. "'The very children armed themselves, "'and there were even legless cripples crawling about, "'barbed and cuirassed between the legs of the topers, "'like big beetles. "'Lastly, a third audience,' the noisiest, jolliest, and most numerous of all, thronged the benches and tables, in whose midst held forth and swore a flute-like voice, issuing from a heavy suit of armor, complete from helmet to spurs. The individual who had thus imprisoned himself in full panoply, was so entirely hidden by his warlike habit, that nothing was to be seen of him but an impudent, red, snub nose, a lock of light curly hair, a rosy mouth, and a pair of bold eyes. His belt was stuck full of daggers and knives, a huge sword hung at his side, a rusty crossbow was on the other thigh, and a vast jug of wine stood before him, not to mention a plump and ragged damsel at his right hand. Every mouth in his vicinity laughed, cursed, and drank. Add to these twenty secondary groups—the serving men and maids running about with jugs on their heads, gamblers stooping over their marbles, their hopscotch, dice, vachette, or exciting game of tringlay, the quarrels in one corner, the kisses in another, and you will have some idea of the scene over which flickered the glare of a huge roaring fire, which made a myriad of monstrous shadows dance upon the walls." As for the noise, it was like the inside of a big bell ringing a full peal. The dripping pan, in which a shower of fat from the spit was crackling, filled up with its constant sputtering the intervals in the endless dialogues going on from one side of the hall to the other. Amidst this uproar, a philosopher sat at the back of the room on the bench in the chimney place, musing. "'with his feet in the ashes "'and his eyes on the burning brands. "'It was Pierre Gringoire. "'Come, make haste, arm yourselves. "'We march in an hour,' said Clopin Troifoux "'to his men of slang. "'A girl hummed. "'Good night, mamma. good night, my sire, "'who sits up last, rakes down the fire. Two card-players disputed together. "'Knave,' cried the redder-faced of the two, "'shaking his fist at the other. "'I will mark you with the club. "'Then you can take the place of the knave of clubs "'in the king's own pack of cards.' "'Oof!' roared a Norman, "'readily to be recognized by his nasal twang. "'We are crowded together here like so many saints at cayovie "'Boys,' said the Duke of Egypt to his followers, "'speaking in falsetto tones.' The witches of France attend their Sabbath without broomstick or ointment or any steed, merely by uttering a few magical words. Italian witches always keep a goat waiting for them at the door. All are obliged to go up the chimney. The voice of the young scamp, armed from head to foot, rose above the uproar. "'Noel! Noel!' he shouted. "'Today I wear armor for the first time. A vagrant!' I am a vagrant by Christ's wounds. Give me a drink. Friends, my name is Jean Frollo du Moulin, and I am a gentleman born. It is my opinion that if God himself were a gendarme, he would turn plunderer. Brothers, we are about to go on a fine expedition. We are valiant fellows. Assault the church. Break open the doors. Carry off the lovely damsel in distress. Save her from her judges. Save her from the priests dismantle the cloisters, burn the bishop in his palace. We'll do all this in less time than it takes a burgomaster to eat a spoonful of soup. Our cause is just. We will strip Notre Dame, and that's the end of it. We'll hang Quasimodo. Do you know Quasimodo, ladies? Did you ever see him ring the big bell of Sunday until he was out of breath? My word, it's a lovely sight." he looks like a devil astride of a great gaping pair of jaws. Friends, listen to me. I am a vagrant to my heart's core. I am a man of slang in my inmost soul. I was born a cadger. I have been very rich, and I've devoured my fortune. My mother meant to make a soldier of me, my father a subdeacon, my aunt a member of the court of inquiry, my grandmother "'protonotary to the king, my great-aunt, a paymaster in the army. "'But I, I turned vagrant. "'I told my father that I had made my choice, "'and he hurled a curse at my head, "'and my mother, she, poor old lady, "'fell to weeping and sputtering, like that log on the fire. "'A short life and a merry one, say I. "'I am as good as a whole houseful of lunatics.' "'Landlady, my darling, more wine! I've money enough still to pay for it. No more Suran wine for me, it frets my throat. Zounds! I'd as soon gargle myself with a swarm of bees!' Meantime the rabble applauded his words with shouts of laughter, and seeing that the tumult about him increased, the student exclaimed, "'Oh, what a delightful confusion!' populi debacantes populoso debacatio the ravings of the people popular fury then he began to sing his eye rolling in feigned ecstasy in the voice of a canon intoning vespers in latin what canticles what instruments what songs what melodies are eternally sung here the instruments of hymns, the soft melody of angels, the admirable canticles of canticles resonate softly, like honey. He stopped short. Here, you devil of a tavern-keeper, give me some supper. There was a moment of comparative quiet, during which the sharp voice of the Duke of Egypt was heard in its turn, instructing his followers. The weasel is called Adwine. The fox, Bluefoot, or the Wood Ranger, the wolf, Greyfoot, or Goldfoot, the bear, Old Man, or Grandfather. The cap of a gnome will make its possessor invisible, and enable him to see invisible things. Every toad that is baptized should be clad in black or red velvet, a bell round its neck, and another at its feet. The godfather holds it by the head, the godmother by the legs. The vagrants continued to arm, whispering together as they did so at the other end of the tavern. "'Poor Esmeralda,' said a gypsy. "'She's our sister. We must rescue her.' "'Is she still at Notre-Dame?' asked a Jewish-looking cadger. "'Yes, in good sooth, she is.' "'Well then, comrades,' cried the cadger, "'on to Notre-Dame.' So much the more that there are two statues in the chapel of Saint-Ferriol and saint Ferrucian, one of Saint John the Baptist and the other of Saint Anthony, of solid gold, the two together weighing seven golden marks and fifteen sterlings, and the silver-gilt pedestals weigh seventeen marks and five ounces. I know all about this. I am a jeweler. Here, Jean's Supper was served— he exclaimed, as he threw himself back upon the bosom of the girl next him. By saint Luc, known to the world at large as Saint-Gaugelieu, I am perfectly happy. Before me stands a fool staring at me with as smug a face as any archduke, and at my left elbow sits another, with teeth so long that they hide his chin. And then, too, I am like Marshal de Gier at the siege of Pontoise. My right wing rests upon an eminence." body of Mahomet. Comrade, you look like a dealer in tennis balls, and yet you dare to take your seat by my side. I am a noble, my friend. Nobility and trade cannot keep company. Get you gone. Hello there, you fellows. Don't fall to fighting. What? Baptiste Croquazon. You, who have so fine a nose, will you risk it against the heavy fists of yonder lout? Donkey— NON QUI DATUM EST HABERI NASUM. It is not given to everyone to have a nose. You are indeed divine, Jacqueline Ronjoret. Tis a pity you're so bald. Hello, my name is Jeanne Frollo, and my brother is an archdeacon. May the devil take him. Every word I say is true. When I turned vagabond, I cheerfully renounced the half of a house situated in paradise which my brother promised me. De medium damum in paradiso. I quote the Scriptures. I have an estate in fee in the Routier shop, and all the women are in love with me, as truly as it is true that Saint Aloysius was an excellent goldsmith, and that the five handicrafts of the good city of Paris are those of the tanners, leather dressers, baldric makers, pursemakers, and cordwainers, and that Saint Lawrence was broiled over eggshells. I swear, comrades, that for a year I'll drink no wine if there be any lie in the words of mine. My charmer, it is moonlight, only look yonder through that loophole, how the wind rumbles the clouds, as I do your kerchief. Come, girls, snuff the children and the candles. Christ and Mahomet. what am I eating now by Jupiter? Ho there, you old jade! THE HAIRS WHICH ARE MISSING ON THE HEADS OF YOUR WOMEN, I FIND IN YOUR OMELETS. I SAY, OLD GIRL, I LIKE MY OMELETS BALD. MAY THE DEVIL PUT YOUR NOSE OUT OF JOINT. A FINE HOSTELRY OF Beelzebub THIS, WHERE THE WENCHES COMB THEIR HEADS WITH FORKS. SO SAYING, HE SMASHED HIS PLATE UPON THE PAVED FLOOR, AND FELL TO SINGING AT THE TOP OF HIS LUNGS. AND FOR THIS SELF OF MINE, NOW BY THE BLOOD DIVINE, no creed I crave, no law to save. I have no fire, I have no hut, and I require no faith to put in monarch high or deity. Meantime, clopin toy had finished his distribution of arms. He approached Gringoire, who seemed plunged in deep thought, with his feet upon an andiron. "'Friend Pierre,' said the King of Blacklegs, "'what the devil are you thinking about?' Gringoire turned to him with a melancholy smile. I love the fire, my dear lord, not for the trivial reason that the fire warms our feet or cooks our soup, but because it throws out sparks. I sometimes spend hours in watching the sparks fly up. I discover a thousand things in these stars that sprinkle the black chimney back. These stars are worlds as well. "'May I be struck by lightning if I understand you,' said the vagrant. "'Do you know what time it is?' "'I do not,' replied Gringoire. Clopin then went up to the Duke of Egypt. "'Comrade Matthias, this is not a lucky moment for our scheme. They say that King Louis the Eleventh is in Paris.' "'So much the more reason for rescuing our sister from his claws,' answered the old gypsy." You speak like a man, Matthias, said the king of Tunis. Moreover, we will act adroitly. We need fear no resistance within the church. The cannons are mere hairs, and we muster strong. The officers of the Parliament will be nicely taken in tomorrow when they come to seize her. By the Pope's bowel, I don't want the pretty maid hanged. With these words, Clopin left the tavern. Meantime, Jehan shouted in hoarse tones, I drink, I eat, I am drunk, I am Jupiter himself, ha, Pierre, lasso meur if you stare at me like that, I'll dust your nose with my fist." Gringoire, on his side, roused from his meditations, was contemplating the wild, noisy scene before him, muttering between his teeth, Luxuriosa res vinum et tumultuosa ebrietas, Wine is a thing of luxury drunkenness, of tumult. Alas, I have good reasons for not drinking, and how aptly Saint Benedict says, Vinum apostatari facit etiam sapientes, to abstain from wine also makes men wise. At this instant Clopin returned, and cried in a voice of thunder, Midnight. At this word, which had the effect of boot and saddle upon a regiment at rest, All the vagrants, men, women, and children, rushed hurriedly from the tavern, with a great clatter of arms and old iron. The moon was overcast. The Court of Miracles was quite dark. There was not a light to be seen, and yet it was far from being empty. A crowd of men and women, talking together in low tones, had collected. There was an audible buzz of voices, and a glitter of all sorts of weapons in the darkness. Clopin mounted a huge stone. "'To your ranks, men of slang!' he cried. "'To your ranks, gypsies! "'To your ranks, Greeks!' There was a stir in the gloom. The vast multitude seemed to be forming into line. After a brief pause, the king of Tunis again raised his voice. "'Now!' silence as we pass through Paris. The chive in the cly is the password. The torches will not be lighted until we reach Notre-Dame. Forward, march. Ten minutes later, the horsemen of the watch fled in terror before a long procession of dark, silent men descending upon the pont au change through the crooked streets which traverse the closely built region of the hall in every direction."